Hello, beautiful soul. Welcome back to the State Shifters podcast. Jordan Canlish here, pumped to dive into another conversation with you. This one is a special guest who is a former client of mine, and it's the first client that I've brought onto the podcast as a guest, which is really special. And as you're about to find out, that the gentleman that I've, I've brought on here is a is a really unique and special person to me. And the reason why this podcast is going to be so impactful today is because we dive into some topics that are not often spoken about as men, and in particular, men's mental health. Uh, because my my guest and client in this episode, his name is Ryan Tyrrell, and Ryan has been through quite a journey in his life, and he's gone through some radical highs and some really dark, deep lows that I wanted to share his story because I know there's lots of other people, especially men who experience some of the mental health difficulties that Ryan has spoken about, that it is sometimes very lonely when we get to these places. So this story that Ryan's going to share will allow you to see, you know, what can happen when you hit a level of success in your life, a level of achievement without really acknowledging what's happening underneath. And this is so common for high achievers, right? We have this immense drive to get things done, but we often overlook some of the emotional signs or the, the emotional indicators that's asking for our attention. So Ryan's a former professional rugby player. He is the master at achieving, but now I've helped him turn him, turn him into a master of feeling as well. So super pumped for this one, guys. Enjoy this conversation with Mr. Ryan Tyrrell. Welcome to the State Shifters Podcast, a show dedicated to helping you discover your true potential through connecting the mind, body, and soul. Mr. Ryan Tyrrell, welcome to the State Shifters Podcast. Brother, we made it. We did. How are you? Mate, I'm good. I'm good. Good. Good trip up from Rockingham. Yes. As always. I'm yes. always excited to see you, Marissa. Man, I, uh, I think you are my first client who I've had on the podcast. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Nice. We called this early, I think. I think you called it early. Yes, I did. Mm. I did. And uh, I held it to you ever since. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, this, this seed got planted um, probably six months ago. When we, I think so. Yeah, first started working together and uh, I knew straight away through working with you and through understanding and learning more about you that uh, you have a, a tremendous gift and a talent and your story is so powerful that I wanted to have you on here at some stage when the time was right uh, to share that and to share about this this beautiful journey that you've been on that I've been honored to be a part of. Um, but bro, why don't you tell people listening or watching, you know, what's got you to this point where, where we're sitting here having this conversation and uh, tell people a little bit about your background and some of the mm. epic things you, you've done in your life so far. Yeah, uh, thanks for that. And I really appreciate it. And I'm um, still getting used to receiving such like, amazing compliments. I think you know that. But man, we're getting there. And a lot of it's thanks to you and a lot of good men I've had in my life. So um, we'll start with the first question, I guess. So what's got me here today? In a lot of, in a lot of ways, it was just having enough of or reaching a moment in my life where I was just sick and tired of the way I was living. And, yeah, like I'd had a lot – I've achieved a lot of things in my life. You know, I realize that now. But 
up until this probably six months ago, I was heavily spinning my wheels, I believe, like in not all areas of my life. Like I was still relatively happy. Um, I had a secure job. Like my family is pretty solid. Um, I was living with my brother, having a great time and getting after it. But there was just something lacking and I was definitely definitely reaching out for things almost to numb myself or just just to get through life. Like I was a you know, I was a copper, you know that. And I guess I was struggling with my identity in that job. Like I was struggling a little bit with that. I was probably three or four years in, I just started questioning as to is this my in my alignment? Is this job for me? Um so while that was going on, I guess I was drinking a lot. Um yeah, and just numbing myself. Really, I was I was existing, I wasn't living. And to come to our fruition where we met each other, you know, I was in I was in Darwin and we met a mutual friend. And my brother, who's been super helpful in everything that I've done, my rugby, and it's given me the confidence to well, be here today. He just said, Go to Darwin and whatever comes your way, just say yes to it. And um because I was living a very comfortable existence. Mm. I was very happy staying home on the weekends, watching a lot of rugby, drinking a lot of beer with my brother, you know, and that was, uh, <laughs> you know, I look back at that, it's still kind of fun in a way, but it's no way to live, right? And uh, our, our paths crossed through a mutual friend and I know we were down south together for a bit and I, I've told you the story a few times. I just like the cut of your rug, bro. Like uh, <laughs> I just like the way you handled yourself and the way you live. And I, you know, we didn't know each other, did we? And we, you took me mm. out with Amanda, your partner, and we had a fucking amazing day. And we watched some rugby together. But um, yeah, I wasn't really used to being around people who were really, uh, I don't say getting after life, but maybe just had some high standards. Well, I hadn't been around that for a long time. I forgot myself a bit after my professional rugby and. Yeah, after that weekend away, I reached out to our friend and we got. A, I didn't know you were a life coach, you know. Mm. I didn't really know what life coaching was to a degree. But um, for me, I was like, whatever he's doing, you being, that being you, I need to do it. Well, we'll start doing it. And uh, yeah, the rest is history, I guess. And then we dropped in pretty quickly, didn't we? Yeah, and then I realized something very quickly about you that mm. made you unique. Uh, and I've worked with hundreds of people at this stage and there was something about you that really stood out straight away and it was your level of commitment mm, and yeah. i learned very quickly where that commitment came from mm. and i resonated so much with like your upbringing and your values and the way you live your life and learning about the fact that you're a former professional rugby player mm. uh, really you know, made me realize where that commitment was coming from because to reach professional at, at any level mm. requires dedication, discipline, commitment to a certain level that the majority will never get to. And you then channeled all of this commitment and discipline into working on yourself mm. through investing in yourself with yeah. me. And then the way you showed up throughout the six months that we got to work together was like, wow, this is, mm. this is a man who's, who's committed. Mm. Um, so tell me a little bit about where you learnt to to embody those attributes, to to hold those character traits that allowed you to achieve su such a level of success in your sporting career, mm -hmm. but now that you've transferred it across into the way you're choosing to live your life. So where where did that all come from? And, and tell me a little bit about your your journey through rugby. I think, um, well, I definitely know. So. I I haven't been sure of a lot of things in life, but I know from an early age, from 15, 16, I was like, I'm going to be a professional rugby player. And I had that intention. 
unbeknownst to myself at that time. And we used to get a lot of uh, magazines that sent from the UK because my folks are originally from the UK. I used to get rugby magazines sent over all the time. And my my um, thing would, I guess, my story or whatever I wanted to do at that time, what I was telling myself was I'll play super rugby and I'll play internationally as well on Heineken Cup or I wanted to mm. play overseas. And at the time, Perth didn't have a super rugby program. So we're sort of the poorer cousins when it came to rugby a bit. Um, how I really, how I dropped in, I guess, or really dedicated myself at that age, in a way, is is from my dad, um, and we can talk about that at length. But I don't agree with the way he went about things all the time, and especially the way he treated me around rugby. Was, his standards were much higher than mine, mm-hmm. and. I see that in myself now. So in a way, he created the man I am today and he definitely created the rugby player. My brother and I talk about this. We, I don't think I would have been – we definitely not had the aggression and maybe the mindset or the internal fortitude just to turn up, you know, and that's what I've learned about myself as a professional, um, even though I lost my way and I like to talk on that as well. Like um, I just knew I could turn up and like when the tough get going, you know, I could just be there and it didn't really matter in the score because I think this is my some of my brothers the other day and you know it's the first time I've spoken to my brothers about my rugby as well because um, as we'll get to like you know disappeared from the scene in a mm. way and um, I've been part of a lot of losing teams and for me I think that just built more resilience because I've stood behind the goal, goalposts a lot of times and with other guys and I could see the guys that were willing to go back out there and and sack up or whatever you want to call it or just, you know, really like turn it back on and no matter what the score is. And I think that's a good analogy for life really because we, you know, we have some wins, man. And even after six months of all this internal work I'm doing and, you know, I'm cracked wide open now. Like I, mm-hmm. I believe truly, truly I'm living from love for the first time in my life and that's been a huge, huge change for me. And um, But... I still have days. I still have days, but they're just days now, or they're just they're just moments in time. They don't they don't end up being weeks or years, which I've had trouble with mental health in the past, and that's so that's the big difference. And I think you and I spoke about no matter all the work I did, the real gift for me was me being able to get out of my own way and just being reattached to my family and, and being open. And um, that was just the yeah. So you helped me with that. And I'm digressing from my rugby chat a bit here. That's all right. I want to I want to share with people as well why why we had such a connection, uh, and and I really do believe that there is like a soul connection, that mm. soul brothers that I, I felt with you, and, yeah, and I, I like I've that. been so grateful for the fact that like a client has turned into one of my best friends. Mm. But thank you. I grew up wanting to be a professional soccer player, mm. like committed, like certain in my mind. Yeah, this is what I'm going to be. Mm. Like, and yeah. I trained every day with that plan. Mm. And I soon realized that how much sacrifice is required, mm, how much yes. um, mindset, how much of, of a certain mindset is required to make it professional. And I made it semi-professional, mm. which I'm still proud of that achievement. Yeah, as you should. Be, but yeah. whenever I meet someone who makes it professional in a sport, I know mm. h- how much commitment is required to achieve that. So I, I, I want people to realize that you know that there is something you've achieved in your life mm. that most people dream of i dreamed of and could never achieve it so when i got to yeah learn about your story it was interesting because i made a a connection or a parallel between the way my dad raised me and the way your dad raised you yeah and there's almost this like 
this extra level of intensity that your dad brought to how he fathered you. He did. That maybe got you to that. <laughs> that was the German thing for sure. But, you know, I love my dad deeply and, you know, I quick digress on the story, but we went to Rottnest together tomorrow. And, man, we had a massive argument. Yesterday, right? Yesterday, yeah. sorry. Yeah, tomorrow. Um, we had a massive argument in the car. We didn't even got out of Rockingham yet. And my poor mum and other brother were in the back. So I guess that shows, like, we've come so far in our relationship is mending and repairing, but we still have our days. We still have our days. And, you know, with all my work I've done, and the hardest thing was coming back, moving back from Perth back to Rockingham to be closer with my family because there was a lot of escapism through my rugby as well. You know, I, I moved interstate. I just turned 18 and had to apply my trade over there in Queensland for a while, which was great, you know. And um, and then when the Western Force started up, I um, I didn't even know I was in the academy actually. I just came, I came home like I was homesick, dude, you know. I was still a bit of a softie at heart and I miss my family. I love my family dearly. So when I came back, um, it's funny you bring that up because we drove past Alcoa on the way back mm. from Rottnest and Alcoa, for anyone who doesn't know, is like aluminum. Aluminum? Yeah, aluminum. Aluminum. Yeah. And, and Rottnest is an island off, off Western <laughs> yeah. Australia for those who yeah, are yeah. not from around here. Yeah, apologies for that. I'm talking <laughs> like everyone knows Perth. Um, yeah, it's a huge refinery and uh, we're driving past and it has a certain smell, you know, as well. Mm. So that's just like nostalgic in the worst ways for me. And my dad's worked there and my brother's worked there as well. And I was just like, you know, I take my hat off for people working there, but that's what I was doing. So I was starting scaffolding at 7 in the morning till 3.34 and then I'd drive up to Perry Lakes, which was about a 45-minute yep. drive with some other lads from Rockingham. There was a few of us in the academy at the time. And then we trained from like 4.30 till about 8.30 or something and then we'd all jump back in the car, boot it back to Rockingham, sleep and then repeat. And that was like six days a week. And now I just that baffles me. But <laughs> at the time there was no question, and um, that's an interesting mindset to have. Like I don't know if it was overly healthy, but it got me where I wanted to go. And maybe I had a higher reason for playing rugby because I mean I, I love rugby dearly, and I've come back to it and really embraced it now. But I was never. It was never. I knew it was never who I was deep down. You know, people associated me with rugby, and it's opened so many doors. And the friends I've made is just. I'm, I'm so grateful. So grateful for my career and my opportunity. Now, I never made a lot of money, but the friendships and the travel was just second to none. Mm -hmm. And that's just kept me going. That's kept me going. I want to uh, get to the point in your rugby journey where where everything shifted and everything changed in your life Mm. because there was a very specific Mm. time when that happened. Before we we go there, I'm, I'm curious to get your perspective on this because now, because we related so much to our upbringing mm. and the way our dads raised us, mm. there is there was a very I saw similar father wounds in you that I experienced from my dad through yes. some of the the trauma mm. around uh, shame around mm. not perf- when when we didn't perform there was a level of uh, perfectionism yeah yes. the, the, and the, and we were we received love conditionally based mm. on how we performed yes yeah and this is a common thing for a lot of people who ex- had strict 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 fathers mm. fathers who uh, raised them with a with a, a high level of discipline mm. it creates this person or this man or woman who is often disconnected from their emotions mm. which allows for a certain level of um, achievement Mm. we're driven to achieve because we have a program, a programming in our subconscious that says 
we must achieve to receive love. Yes, yes. And when you achieve that, like it's almost, it's sometimes it can be empty, you know what I mean? And my brother was thrown yes. by that completely when yes. I told him and shared my time, especially at the force, you know, like I guess in a lot of ways, and that's funny you bring that up. So my dad's perspective on me, I guess, and my rugby shifted when I became a professional athlete. Like he was my number one supporter. And that's to say he didn't support me when I was growing up because he was always there and dropping me off and, you know, He's a great father, but he, I, I believe he lived vicariously through me. And now I know because, you know, I'm critical of myself and if I'm hard on anyone else, I'm doubly hard on myself. And in my way, I saw that through my dad. And, like, and he's a good rugby player, you know, and he's a young – I was still probably part of the era. I know there's some young professionals out there, but, like, at 16, 17, I was playing – you know, against adults and there's fucking something to be said about that, you mm. know what I mean? And would I have my son doing that? Probably not. <laughs> yeah, like but, not just playing, like running into adults and mm, tackling them, yeah. different from uh, <laughs> yeah. the, the football, round ball, soccer game. Yeah, right? and I see I see lads, I love watching rugby now and I just look at some of these boys on there and I'm just like, I'll pass on that one, thank <laughs> you. <laughs> like, I've, I've been a human battering ram for a long time and yeah, there's a certain mindset that you need to be able to be solid in yourself to not let anyone sort of, come through mm. our part and my biggest thing when I was playing when I was an athlete and especially when I was on TV or something I'd be horrified if I made a mistake like one mistake in a game for me could dismantle a whole potentially a good game I could be played yeah. well for 90% and I could have compliments after that and I think that was the reason why I never used to watch footage of my game or anything like that now I understand that deeply you know there was um, I was playing small in it and um, I was playing small in a big environment I was playing small in the place I, in my dream job as well, mm. which, uh, yeah, and I don't want to paint it as all doom and gloom because uh, I really came alive after my fourth career and I went to Cardiff. Like that was that was big for me. But I won't get too far ahead, I guess, if I, want you, I can talk on my fourth career. Yeah, well, well, there's almost well, like the, my short fourth career. Yeah, <laughs> but there's there's almost this point right in in the the higher achiever, the man who has father wounds, who suppresses his emotions and uses achievement to uh, cope. Mm, uh, yes. There comes a point where, and and I'm curious to hear how you how do you arrive at this point in your mm. journey where. You can achieve, you know, you achieve professional rugby, you mm. achieved all of this, these things, mm. but it still wasn't fulfilling you emotionally. There was still uh, yeah. wounding down there that was like mm. bubbling to the surface. And, and we see this or I saw this in my life through uh, constant self-judgment and self-criticism mm. yeah, and, yeah, and bringing yeah. myself down and never feeling like I was doing enough, always mm. feeling guilty for, you know, how I was performing not, mm. and not achieving. For you, it hit a point where you achieved an amazing accomplishment getting to play in Cardiff mm. and then having an opportunity to come back and play again in Australia. And, and yeah. Dude, walk us through what transpired after you hit this point where you're seemingly at the peak of your career and then all of a sudden um, your emotions started to rise to the Get surface. better of me, yeah. yeah. Um, a caveat to that, I'll start with the force as well because I can just talk about my neck injury, which was probably maybe a catalyst for that as well. But um, yeah, even... You know, I put a lot of credence on on rugby, you know. I guess that's all I had in a, in a lot of ways, you know. My relationships were there, but not so much, not so much with women, but yeah, we can talk about that as well. But, um, yeah, so I hurt my neck in my fourth game for the force, but I'd had a bad neck going into that game as well. And I was playing against the Waratahs here in Perth and showing my vintage. It was like 2010, maybe 11, no, 2010. And 
yeah, maybe you can talk on this as well, high achievers that I did. It's probably because I had one channel, there was so much emphasis and by failing or not getting a line out straight or dropping a pass, like my world could crumble. And an example is my first game against the Queensland Reds. And um, so, you know, for no rugby people out there, I mean, throwing line outs is like an acquired skill, you know. It's similar to maybe goal kicking as well, but there's more elements. There's human behaviour that can be wind. And I wasn't used to playing the position I'd signed in, so I grew up playing flanker, and that was where my heart was at really. But the carrot was dangled and um, to play hooker and make a transition into the front row. And any front rowers out there, man, like, I get that. Like, that's a heavy job. And, you know, I used to sit on the side of the scrum and, you know, have my good time. And But if you get up in, like, the wheelhouse or the engine room, like, that's a different kettle of fish as well. And I, I really enjoyed that after a while. But I had, a, I had a bad head knock, I think, in South Africa, and I carried that through to a, a game against the Waratahs. And I was having to take Tramadol before the games just to play. So, and at the same time, my mental health was... Uh, probably declining at this stage. Well, I guess maybe I'd finally got, I'd reached my pinnacle of what I thought was going to be my everything. And once I was in it, maybe the pressure, the pain in my neck, you know, it just became a little bit too much. But on my last game, when I was against the Waratahs and trying to play, like, man, I hit every liner and things were going well. But I, I got a bad head knock in the first five minutes, I think, and I just completely lost feeling in my left arm. And I was like, man, and most rugby players go, oh, it's a stinger. And I thought, to be fair, I thought it was that as well. So I kept playing. I kept playing. And, and the Waratahs, they're a solid team. There's also a boy playing for that team who I'll give a shout-out, man. His name's uh, Pilota now, and he played for the Wallabies. And I used to look up to this man, and he is like a human wrecking ball. And I had to keep scrummage against this guy with my neck. And it was just getting worse and worse. And I was like, but I can't come off. And, I mean, I guess there's self-love in that. Well, yeah. when I look back on that, there was no way I was coming off that field until they pulled me off or I got knocked out or something. Yeah. But they finally pulled me off, thank fuck. And uh, <laughs> afterwards, like my dad was I – mean, I just remember, and I'll never forget this, is, you know, I came off and we didn't win. Like, with a force, we were battling a bit. But, uh, yeah, I felt, I felt good. I felt really good. My dad was there. And, man, my dad was crying. And I gave him a hug and I was just like – I felt like I'd made it and I'd played well enough in my own right to secure my position for the next next week. But um, after that, I was just like I was in a lot of pain and I tried to go to the pub with the boys. And for me to leave the pub, I must have been in pain. So <laughs> I just went home and I remember laying there for like a night and I was just like this is something's not right. I just couldn't move. Like, the more I tried, I just couldn't move. I had to lay on the floor for a couple of days. And I, long story short, I got a um, – Went to see a radiographer, a surgeon, and one dude cleared me to play against the Bulls the next week, which is a South African team. And I was like, dude, I've got to be pretty fucking switched on to like come up with these boys. And I'll play through most things. Most rugby guys will. Well, most professional athletes will. They, mm. you know, I, I love MMA. I love watching fighters. And I think most guys talk about they don't get through a training camp without some sort of niggle. So you just get on with it. But um, I, I finally saw a good surgeon and we did some imaging and turned out my disc was just like bolt like pressing right up against my spinal cord and he was sort of thrown that he asked me when this happened and I was just like oh you know like five minutes in I got a knock to the top of my head and he was like man you're like a bee's dick away from being in a wheelchair <laughs> so for me that was like oh, it sounds heavy telling the story as well but I think and this is a testament to my mindset or a detriment whatever you want to look at it because I was like okay cool so when what's happened when can I play like that's all I thought and my mum found out about it my parents and they were just like just pull the pin. And I was like, no, I've just got a taste. Yeah. Like, I've just had a taste and I realized I can compete at that level. And so I had neck surgery. I was out for like a year. 
But my, ne- my re- career never really co- recovered at the force. Um, as businesses do, they have to move on, and I understand that. So I had a year off, man, and then I, I just went back to Bricky's labouring and stuff. Like I guess that that's also it shows where I was mentally as well because now I would use that platform, which I'm using it now. I'm come back around full circle, you know, and I'd use that platform there to, I believe deeply because I didn't love myself. I wasn't I wasn't able to live from a place of love and be of service to others through the rugby community. So I pulled myself back and I went to Rockingham and I was a Bricky's labour again, and my mental health just would be skyrocketing there because I was. Could you imagine how hard I was on myself then when I was back and just fucking treading water a little bit mm. and dealing with this neck and unsure whether I would even come back? And I think I came back and did another preseason with the force and things are just, I was just pushing through, man. I, I was trying to surf and my neck was bad. And so I took another year off and went back to, sca- I went to scaffolding then. So it was just another, there's like a, I guess there's a pattern in my life where I, and, and I'm not, I want to make it clear that I'm not, um, shitting on any of these jobs mm-hmm. man, because I yeah. had great time scaffolding as well like but I found myself calling back to my friends and I could go back and play small in certain areas and I wasn't willing it's almost like oh, I've, I've given it my best shot now it just now it just exists and that wasn't good that wasn't even then it probably wasn't good enough for me so I had a good friend at that time who was playing at Harlequins in London and he just kept he just I think it was only 27 28 so it wasn't really in my prime and he was instrumental in getting me over to get me over to London. And I had a partner at the time, and uh, you know we're we're close now. She's a good chick, but she was you know it was just hard. Two young people, and I was twenty eight, still young, you know. And I was just I was probably hard work to live with as well because I had you know I just felt like my career was just taken from un- from under me. And um, yeah, I was very attached to low self worth and no self-love and so i just packed my bags left this relationship and got on so the your friend invited you over to london saying mm. hey i've got an opportunity out here well he was just like he believed in me enough to go come here and we'll sort something out and you know i like that about me that i had a crack you know there was nothing in there was nothing in concrete but as i was it's like a week out from leaving to meeting my mate in heathrow i had a call from my old manager and I hadn't heard from him for a while. And he's like, Tiz, what are you up to? And I'm like, oh, mate, I'm fucking scaffolding at the moment. He's like, oh, uh, like Cardiff Blues. And they're, mate, they're a phenomenal club, you know. And I, even I knew as soon as he mm. said Cardiff Blues, I mean, I know who they are. And he's like, they're looking for a hooker. They're desperate for a hooker. Um, is there any chance you can get to Heathrow next week? And I'm like, well, dude, I'll be there on Thursday. So this is how, I guess, unbeknownst to myself, where I really probably started trusting in the universe a bit more then because this it just fell into my lap in a way and I got to Heathrow, saw my mate for a bit, met another manager and we shot down to Wales and a good friend of mine had put some like <laughs> a rugby clip together for me, like bless him, and he did a good job at that time and I just showed him this clip. There wasn't a lot of footage because I'd only played four or five super rugby games with Perth and I, I gave them this uh, footage and they're like, Yep, let's give you a next thing I know I was playing in Italy and they'll like, all sign you for a year. Wow. And that's how that happened. It happened very fast. I didn't have time to think about it. And for me, Cardiff is weird. It's Cardiff for me was coming home. I felt I felt more at home with Cardiff. And I don't know if it's it was the culture, maybe the culture of the force at that time was different. Um Yeah, I don't know. The Welsh, there's a few Kiwis, there's a few Australians. It was a family. Like they just I've never I've never been shown love like that outside of you know, my family and friends. And, yeah, I'm still in touch with these lads as well. And I've got deep, deep gratitude for that. And that kicked off that season, man. And 
yeah, it was cold, blistering cold. Uh, I really fell into becoming a front rower and I enjoyed that. Like I got big, I got fucking fat, like I was eating. <laughs> like, I was just like, and I always say like, oh, you know, I'm prone to barrel, right? So I'm always like, I've got to watch what I eat for the most part. And over there, it was almost like a free range because the, the rugby is different. You know, here it's a faster, quicker game. Yeah. Weather over there, I like to keep rugby tight and they like when you're big. And, man, I, I enjoyed that because I could drink beers with the boys all the time. <laughs> there was not a lot of skin folds happening. And um, I told the story to my mum yesterday, actually. I was just like, I, I actually I accidentally played myself into the team. Like, because I didn't, still didn't – I was happy enough sitting on the bench there or being part of the wider squad and kind of cruising. And, yeah, I used to walk up sometimes and look at the team list. And if I wasn't on it, I was happy with that. Yeah. And now I know what that means. But at the time – yeah, I guess like my mental health was slipping. And when I say it was slipping, you know, I was, I ended up being diagnosed with OCD. And I know that started from an early age, probably um, obviously a bit to do with dad, like, but I know dad's been through his stuff with his, his father. I know there's a history of mental health in the health in the family now. I think my father's uncle took his own life. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not talked about, it's not spoken about much, but I like hearing that now from mum and, so I can understand myself better and understand my father. Because I, I essentially, my, my dad and I are the same person a lot of the time. And, yeah, so we, back to, yeah, so I was just getting after it in Cardiff. Um, started making the bench every week. And then just started, there were some injuries there. But, I mean, I don't want to take anything away of the fact that I, enjoy, I was enjoying my rugby. And I was playing well. And I finally sort of stepped into myself then. I'm like, I can do this. I can make a go of this, you know. And people were giving me compliments. And I still wasn't receiving them. But, you know, there was a bit of internal fortitude there. So, at what point did you realize that your mental health was getting quite bad? And mm. it was becoming a, a problem that you couldn't ignore anymore mm. through through your, you know, performing and mm. achieving and training. Uh, and for those who, who don't know what OCD is like, you know, mm. w- what when did this get to the point of like debilitating? Yeah, that's a good question, man. Um, so I guess OCD for me, how it presented itself was with intrusive thoughts. Mm-hmm. And I think so, people call this pure OCD. You know, you can fact check that if you want. But so for me, it was um, that was from an early age, like 19, 20, or 21. Like I would just have intrusive thoughts that I couldn't shake, you know. And some, a lot of them, most of them were just around um, somewhere about sexual performance. Others were around uh, just losing a partner. Uh, yeah, it was all sort of based. There was like two or three of them, man. It was just. Is repetitive, and I didn't just, understand. Just couldn't couldn't get them out of your head. Certain yeah. So once patterns. they, yeah. for me, and I explained this to my brother. I said, like, once they dropped in, it was very hard for me to shift that. And it would be like I'm going to meet a new partner. I would start thinking about my sexual inadequacies before yeah. I'd even like we even hadn't even got there yet. Now I understand where that comes from. Is this you know I was seeking love and I didn't think I was worthy of love, and there was some trauma growing up, and so my that's how my mind just started working and. Even when I was sort of getting ready for a game, I could attach myself to like calls and then just start like something would drop in and go, you don't know a call. And I'm like, no, I don't know that call, do I? And then like, no, no, you've got it. You've calls is in like, like a, a line-out call line, or, a, yeah. or like a game call, you yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Because like, right. this is a funny story i never forget. Like I was sitting in a team meeting once and fucking daydreaming, bro, <laughs> which is like terrible. And um, <laughs> I guess sometimes if I was daydreaming, that might be a, like a piece, that might be peace in my mind and like, the coach at the time, John Mitchell, who's like, 
he's a solid coach, Coach Yorbass. Like, yeah. Tiz, what's this play? And I just started talking, like, just started rattling shit off. And the boys were like looking at me, and I'm like, holy fuck, I've just had a moment here in front of like the whole team. But you know, now I look back at that, and that's hilarious to me. But at the time, it wasn't, man. Like, it was, it was heavy. And I'd be trying to train, and I'd. Oh, that was the other one. I always. So it was always related to sex, like sex or mm-hmm. my relationships with women and essentially women not wanting me. So the other thing is I used to, I used to convince myself I'd catch something all the time, mm-hmm. like a sexually transmitted disease. And I've seen my, like my, my own doctor since I was like 19, 20, and that man fucking saved my life, you know what I mean? And we're very close now. And he's seen my dick far too many times. Like he should never, like I should never <laughs> put any man through that. But like I said, that's how deep I was in it and – so I'd, I'd had sessions at the force and and even down at Rockingham Rugby Club and I drove home from there the other day and I said, I used to feel so like empty. Like I'd be okay around the boys to a degree, but then I'd leave and I'd be almost scared to go home, scared to be by myself. And I do believe this is why I'm like 38 and I've never really lived by myself. Like I've always had a partner or yeah, I've always had like a safety net there. And I was I was feeling like that as a force. Maybe it wasn't apparent. Like I was able to, I was really able to internalize things. So I was embarrassed for the most part. I didn't I didn't understand OCD like I do now. Mm. And I'll happily talk on this to. I could see someone struggling on life. They need to talk to me, dude. I'm fucking. The floodgates are open now yeah. because I've come out the other end of it. But in that time, it was, yeah, just constant, constant preoccupation with shit really that i didn't need to when i really needs to be lasered in to the game the mind was, just taking control essentially absolutely not being yeah. able to find i just couldn't yeah. i couldn't i couldn't have a moment's peace right. i guess that's that's the best way of putting it and how i found my peace was i guess in the games there'd be moments of flow state as well and or if there was i was in a relationship and certain things were going okay then a few of those fears or those intrusive thoughts would because I would solve that problem mm-hmm. if that made sense. Mm-hmm. So by having regular sex with my partner, I knew that I didn't have a STD or anything. I couldn't pass that on to anyone. And then sometimes, but a lot of it was reassurance, like seeing doctors and then getting STD tests or just, just fucking Googling man yeah. and like yeah. wondering why my symptoms are, why I'm feeling this way. And um, so this just escalated and escalated. As things progressed. Yeah, like it was always there, I guess, but it came in ebbs and flows. So when I hurt my neck, I guess, it, you know, then like I guess mental health in a way can spike, right? And then, you know, you can can drop down and I used to have moments of relatively what I considered a normal existence, but it still wasn't a proper existence. And I always had that at Cardiff, but I was burying it with – being very busy, like playing a lot of rugby, training all the time, and then drinking a lot of fucking mm-hmm. alcohol on Saturday night. So it was coming to a crux. So I guess from 19 to like 28, and I'd seen a few different psychs, and I'm like, this is why it's always, it's my advice is always to anyone, like if you've seen a psych, like just because you see the first one doesn't always mean that's a fit, you know? And just keep pursuing, keep pursuing until you find someone you have a fit with and you can maybe they really understand you because I went through a few I went through a through phases and it's not a blame game but people just like not understanding what I was trying to articulate I guess and then I got bored of that or I felt like I was being a burden so I just pulled back completely and I wouldn't share anymore but I was just a bit like oh this is how I'm going to fucking survive and this is how I'll get through it yeah talk to me about that that rock bottom moment man because mm. there was a moment yeah, when yeah. this com- 
it, yeah, got it, it got to, to the point. Yeah. yeah, it did. Yeah. Well, that was the straw that broke the camel's back for me, and so it was 2013, 14. So I'd had a good season at Cardiff. They'd offered me a two-year deal, which I was excited about. But my manager had also managed to like broker a deal with the Melbourne Rebels here, and. So the, the thought for me coming home was like doubly excited to maybe throw my hat in the ring to play for the Wallabies. You know, who knows? Yeah. If you're playing at that level, everyone's got a shot, right? And um, so leading into that, it was sort of the end of the season. I guess there was a lot of pressure around contracts and all this sort of bits and pieces. And yeah, my all through my time at Cardiff, I was heavily reliant on my brother. My, my poor brother, like I'd ring and just have, I, 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 remember, I remember this now, I'd just be like, especially after drinking, I'd be calling him and, you know, he was just trying to get through his own own life, but he could sort of, I guess he deeply understood where I was, even more so than I was. So yeah, I was coming to a crux, man, and I was just getting worse and worse and worse and I should have been, I should have been super excited about coming home, but I wasn't. I just became ill, like really ill, I guess. It's the best way of putting it. And I had all these pressures on and what, should have been the best moment in my life coming home and celebrating with my family before I went on to Melbourne and then getting my parents to be able to come see me play super rugby ended up just being like, I guess, without being overly dramatic, it's sort of a fight for life really for Mm -hmm. me. And I came home and I couldn't explain like, and that was, for me, that was the most devastating thing for me. Everyone was so happy to see me, including my dad. My dad was super proud of me. He used to ring me all the time with Skype all the time and me just being empty inside and just, I had no, I had no lust for life, let alone trying to put on a facade that, man, I'd come home and had a good time in Cardiff and, and bought a load of kit back for everyone and wanted to share that. But at the same time, I was fucking dead inside. And then I had to get ready to go to Melbourne and I'd signed this two-year deal and there was media obligations and everything. So people knew what I was up to to a degree. And, man, I was just treading water. And closer, closer it came to Melbourne, the worse I get. Like, I just wasn't able to get out of bed. And what was really, what was really uh, my intrusive thought that was really fucking with me then was that I'd caught something. Mm. And I wasn't even, that was the crazy thing about intrusive thoughts. There's no, for me, there was no real factual evidence. There wasn't because I'd see doctors and get all the tests and I'd I'd see my doctor at the medical center in Rockingham, like bless him, and he would just look at me, bro. He's just like, how are you trying to defeat science? (laughs) Like, How are you trying to argue with science? And I'm like, I just can't explain it. And we got to a stage where, couple of days before flying out to Melbourne, like my parents had taken me to hospital. And I always, the shame I feel, not so much now, like, but what I put them through. And I think any parent could relate, I guess. They see their son being away and they come back and they just didn't know what to do. And I saw a GP after that and I'm like, I don't know, I need something. I need meds or something. He's like, he led me, not led me astray, but he was almost like, well, you won't be able to take meds and play professional rugby. And, I mean, that's a fallacy for me now because medication ended up saving my life. But uh, I went to Melbourne, bro. Like, I, my parents dropped me off, and I'll never forget this. I was in the back of the car, and just, and I think uh, a psychologist asked me not long ago, he's like, um, did you ever have a plan? Which is like, I guess if people are ready, and I learned this through policing, if they've got a plan, man, they're pretty serious. Yeah. Like, it's, it's go time for them. A plan to, uh, plan to take your own life. You take your yeah. own life, yeah. So I don't think I ever got to that, but I just had such a sense of like hopelessness that, yeah. And then I was scared, man. And I, I remember getting, I remember my parents crying at the airport and I just sat on this fucking plane just going, what am I going to do? Like, I know I'm like cooked. Like, I know, I know yeah. I'm sort of, um, but I had this, I had this uh, internal thing where I was still, like, I guess if I was pushed into a corner, I could still sort of turn up. 
and this is a funny story. I'll never forget this. It was like a young girl on the plane too. And we started gas bagging and um, we really hit it off. And I asked, we got a number. And I was just, internally, I was like, you can't even sort. You are such, such rock bottom, but yet you're still trying to get a fucking phone number. Maybe that's the whole problem. But you know, that's that's not what it was. But it's always just funny for me to think, like, even though I was in it all the time. And I won't say from my 19 to my 20s, it was always that. But it was always knocking on the door. It was always it wasn't far behind, and a thought could ruin my day, man, or yeah. my few days. Yeah. So you, wait, you were you were on the plane mm. arrived. In Melbourne, in Melbourne, ready to start this new career. Ready to start training. So I think I got there Sunday and I had to be there Monday morning. But also leading up to this, like, they must have known something was off, I guess, because I just didn't have the enthusiasm. Like, for me, and the whole pinnacle of this was, you know, my dreams were being realized again. Like, I'd had this at the force, but I, my neck, I had my neck injury. And then I got back and I played overseas and coming back was huge for me. So it was lit. And that's why I find it funny now. It's... I had my mental health break or I had my breakdown at the height of what I've always dreamed to do mm-hmm. in a way. Well, what I thought I always dreamed to do. And yeah, I got off the plane, dude. And I know we've spoken about this before. I went, I checked into a hotel and there's a few other boys in the hotel, but they weren't, I mean, I just kept to myself because I was battling. Mm. And I just sat there and I was just like, dude, I can't get, I can't get through this. And I, I think I went and got some KFC. So how I was still worrying about eating at that stage, I guess, you know, I'll never starve to death. But And I just was crying, like eating KFC, dude. And then I had this long shower. And the next morning, and I was just like, dude, I'm out. I'm out. So I just turned my phone off. Not the most mature decision. But like I said, anyone anyone in the grips of that, I, like I take my hat off to. They're, they're putting one foot in the front of the other. Um Got in this cab and this cab was super chirpy. I just, I just never vividly remember this. And I was trying to have a conversation. I was like, even through all my shit, and I think a lot of people do this in mental health, is like they still feel like they're a burden or they're still trying to appease others or help others, you know. And I think there's some real strength in that if anyone's going through some heavy shit and they still, they still turn up for others, you know what I mean? Or they'll still be there because mental health is a selfish endeavor because it's, it's survival. So, um, that I got to the airport. Got on a plane home, phone off, just told my parents they picked me up. And, uh, dude, I just went underground for like three or four days and my phone was fucking blowing up. And it wasn't the most mature decision, but I just didn't know how to handle it. I didn't know what was happening. Um, I don't think they took me back to the hospital. I don't think we went that far, but I was just – I stayed at my parents for a couple of days until my dad was like, bless him, he was a bit like, you know, when are you moving out? And – then I spoke to the coach eventually and I just said, listen, I'm going to be a detriment to the team. I want nothing more to be there but – and, I, you know, they'd already signed people. So it was just a clusterfuck, dude. Mm. But I look back now and it was the, the change in my life I needed because I think Eckhart talks about this, just breaking, like my mind broke because I'd been dealing with that for on and off for 10 years mm. without any sort of – Maybe even any light at the end of the tunnel. I would just said that was that was me. Yeah. So when I wasn't doing, when I wasn't having a big mental episode, like that was the biggest one I've had. But pr- previous to that, it would just be like, even if I was out and about, like pretending I was having fun. Like deep down, I was never, I was never at peace. So through our work, without going off topic, me finding this inner peace is more valuable to me than anything. That's why I know my life will always be good now. Like. And it, and I'll never I'll never drop back into where I was, mm. and and it's it's nice to get to people to understand that, but they don't understand it straight away. And like my parents will still worry from time to time, but I have to have conversations with them and just be like, 
that's that was an old me, you know. And just you know, I've got reverence, or not reverence, it's a bit too much, but a lot of respect for mental health and my mental health in particular. And I don't let it sway. Like, and I think you you can attest to this. I guess I, man, I keep my fucking mental health tight, you know. And I never did that. So after the back end of my rugby, there was just. It was just an outcry, really. My manager's like, this is unprecedented in Australian rugby. No one's ever done this before. And I was like, well, and I get it, man. They probably wouldn't have understood completely what I was going through. No, like, well, back then, nobody, mm. this, nobody spoke mm. about this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure you weren't the only one going through it, right? No, for sure, for yeah. sure. I know there's guys that have, of guys I've played with have taken their own lives and stuff, you know. And that's, that's why I know my purpose is clear now. Yeah. Bro, thank you for for sharing that. Mm. Uh, it's not easy to talk about some of the yeah, darkness that we've yeah. been through, and and just through you sharing that, I know a lot of people feel really seen right now mm. who are listening to this who've been through similar things. So mm. thank you. No, you're welcome. And uh, you nailed something there around the once you realise that your inner peace is the only thing that matters, mm-hmm. it then becomes the number one priority yeah. in your life. Yeah, because yeah. you can achieve. Mm. And you achieved your dreams and realized without inner peace, it's no good. Yeah, at the height of what I deem my dream job, I was the lowest ever of my life internally. And um, that's really hard for people to wrap their heads around. So my brothers, when I had the conversation, I'm so glad I did, like 10 years too late, but it's all good. And now they understand. And I I recently moved in with my brother the last three months and he can understand how my mind works even now. But now it's like... You know, I don't know if I'm quoting Kanye wrong, but he just says, you know, your mental health or your OCD can be your superpower. Mm-hmm. And it really can. Like, you know, I, I know I have a busy mind, but I also know I need to take breaks and I need to drop into meditation or just be with myself. And you've, you've helped me with that, you know, like a mantra of mine is like, I don't have to be anywhere. I don't have to do anything. And, you know, I want to do things and I can be super busy, but I got to, you know, it can be a razor's edge sometimes. For sure. Of, of being too busy or trying to appease people and people please and just do too much and spread yourself thin. And that's that's not fun either. Bro, there's so many people mm. listening, nodding right now, yeah, listening yeah. or watching, nodding Dude, to that. We I'm can still relate. like that in a way. And yeah. I, I think I said this when I came up here, like, you know, there were some nerves around this podcast and talking to you and especially with anyone with intrusive thoughts. Intrusive thoughts like attack what you hold dearest to yourself. And they can be nasty motherfuckers, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes. And that was the biggest fear for me telling my friends this is how I was feeling and some fucking beautiful men I've told and they've just like absorbed that shit and been all good and like my brothers and even my dad and my mum like I'm, I'm pretty open to a fault sometimes my poor mum has just heard everything that's come out of my mouth but um, yeah it's just it's just super important to let that drop for anyone dealing with mental health or you know and we can talk on this till the cows come home can't we but you know you're not your thoughts but when you're deeply deeply in that even as a normal, I was about to say normal human, but it's fucking outrageous. <laughs> but even in your day-to-day life, if things are ticking along well, you know, we're, we're fucking clustered with internal thoughts. Like they're just, it's a minefield sometimes. Yeah. But yeah. they can be, I think, I think with, with people that don't have mental health, especially they don't have OCD, the thoughts are probably ranging far and wide. That's not to say they're always good. But when it's intrusive, it's like a tax you hits you right in your fucking feels, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And you it's hard for you to break through the other end and it's hard for you to understand that. So I just have like mental ping pong myself like all day. And that's exhausting in itself. Yeah, I can't mm. remember the the quote how exactly it goes, but it's something like, you know, 
the root of all suffering is an untrained mind. And, yes, you know, yes, through yes. this work, you've now realized, you know, mm. once your mind's under control, once you've learned to tame that, that mm. wild beast, yeah. you know, you can then, it then becomes your, your tool and your servant rather yes, than yes, it controlling yes. you. Like you're the captain of your ship. Yeah, yeah, which mm. for people, you know, initially who are in these spirals, sometimes medication is the first thing mm. that gives them a sense of like, okay, finally my mind is not like, overwhelming yeah. like can you That's tell important. me a little bit about breaking some of the addictions that you relied upon yeah, to, man, to calm sure. your mind for sure i jump in quickly before like yeah. a thing i love from eckhart is just like one of his f- phrases is just the human condition is lost in thought and i was just like dude that's so mm-hmm. so apparent but yeah so um it wasn't all pl- it wasn't all smooth sailing but i I kind of worked my way through it after Cardiff. I did disappear, man. Well, when I say disappeared, like I was still doing my thing in Rockingham and cruising and getting back into work. And so there was a testament to the people around me. And I, I, I slowly, slowly got up there, got back. But, dude, I wasn't living still. Like I was still stuck. I still hadn't been diagnosed with anything at this stage. So I – what was I doing then? I needed – I was reaching again. I was chasing. And that's a condition of that as well, right? So I was – pulling like women into my life because I, I couldn't be by myself. Um, then I started a policing career, which at this stage, I think my mental health had been diagnosed. Sorry, it had been diagnosed. So I went to see a uh, amazing doctor at the Marion Center, which is in Wembley. And at this stage, I'd spoke to so many psychs. Well, I say so many, man, like four or five over the years, but that was just tedious every time I had to go there and try and explain myself and articulate myself and it's like the ramblings of a madman, like because <laughs> that's what was happening in my head. And so I just kept, I kept keeping a diary. And um, anytime, I, like whatever I was feeling, I just started jotting it down. And I went to see this this gentleman, and it wasn't my initial doctor. And it turned out being someone else. And I was at my wit's end, dude. I was just like, I don't know if this doesn't work. I don't know what I'm going to do. And I just handed him my diary, and it was full. And he read like half a chapter, and I was like. Are you right, mate? You better read that whole thing. But I guess every page would have been the same. So it's <laughs> the same thoughts going through. But he just read and goes, oh, yeah, sweet. Uh, you've got what we call a pure OCD. We can, we'll fix that. And for me, that was, that was the game changer. I was just like, it's just like the weight of my world fell off my shoulders. You know, I think I cried in that office. You know, I mean, I love a cry now, but that was um, when I used to cry back then. That was like pain. Mm. And he's just like, all we got to do is um, – We'll get you on some medication. I was against that for the longest time. And I think that's why I didn't go really pursue my mental health. I just spun my wheels. And, and I've, if men have concerns about taking medication, man, that, that saved my life. That saved my life. And nothing mattered to that. And we got on a low dose of uh, flumoxamine, I believe. And, man, that was um, the first time I'd had some clarity in my life for a long time. You know, I was with a beautiful girl at the time. She really helped me through that. But I had about six, seven, six to eight weeks off no drinking, eating clean. I think I was juicing back then and just on my tablets. And I was just like, holy fuck. So that was a level of clarity that I was had never been used to having before. And then all of a sudden I was doing some caring at the time with the Autism Association, trying to become a police officer. And that was just like the best job I've ever had. I fucking I love that job. Like It's so much fun. And with the clarity of my mind, I was able to really turn up and see people instead of like the mist that I had in front of my eyes, you know. And, but it wasn't all smooth sailing. It's, it's funny, you know, if we can keep talking about that too. Like I had a year, but I, after that six to eight weeks, 
And people, I, you know, I guess people can feel like this. I started feeling really good. And then I was still caught in the thing, the ideal or ideology that I had to drink. And, you know, drinking was a huge part of my life. I hadn't broken that from rugby. And I, I went back into that, started drinking. I don't want to say drinking, man. Like I was, I'm flippant with my drinking. But if I was really serious about it, I was drinking a lot. Like, mm. you know, as rugby boys can drink a lot of piss. And that's like just the worst, man. That's just poison, you know. And I ended up getting into the police. And all through all through the policing, policing academy, this time I realized what I was doing. So I gave my mental health a good six to eight weeks, which sounds crazy. It sounds crazy from what I've gone through. And to have that moment, to have that moment of like more clarity and just feeling myself that I allowed bad habits to still drag me back. But you have to understand like I was like not getting out of bed and stuff and now I was like, well, I've got a new lease on life. I want to get back in the world. I want to do things with friends and stuff. But then it became a slippery slope and I, I had a like fucking – I love painkillers, man. Well, I didn't love them, but they, well, I did love them, yeah, because they were, I, I got introduced them. You, sorry, introduced to tramadol after my neck operation, and I could probably you could probably imagine with intrusive thoughts or any sort of mental health, like if you're on opiates, dude, that kind of like sails you along the river, yeah, right? Num- yeah, numbs things. Out. <laughs> yeah, it does, and it was feeling good. So even through my policing, started my policing career and stuff, like I guess. Tramadol, and also had this other nerve pain. Lyrica, I was taking that as well, and so, you know, it's not that I wasn't turning up for work because I was, and it wasn't I wasn't taking it all the time. But I had a habit, like I was having them on the weekends, and if I was feeling a little bit off, I'd be like, "Oh, some tramadol, be fine." And I knew how to obtain them, and I was fucking living on them, bro, and drinking. And I got to a stage, and then I wasn't sleeping, I guess, with the police as much as I needed to. Um, I always just say things wouldn't bother me, you know, we're tending suicides, domestic violence is rife, you're doing a lot of that. And I got to a stage where probably three or four years in again, and if I'm jumping too far ahead, man, just right. just rein me in, where even though I thought I was fucking solid, man, my mental health was slipping again, which is funny, you know, I hadn't gone full circle. And I think that's it, the fact that you can sort of come out of your darkest days and then but you don't quite go back there. So you're kind of like, well... Look how bad it was a few years ago, but I'm, I'm doing good now. I'm doing good now. And I was just numbing myself constantly, constantly until, man, I had a panic attack like last year, probably just before we started working with each other. And now I know that it's just the combination of not enough sleep. But, dude, I just wasn't sleeping. You know, I do a, a night shift sometimes. It can be 10 hours, a normal night shift. It can be 12. I come back, I have two or three hours, boom. Try and train because we've always got to train, right? If mm. I wasn't training, I wasn't like fucking winning at life. And then I go back to work again. And uh, yeah, I was just surviving through drinking a lot, unhealthy drinking. And I could be an, I can be an obnoxious dude on, when I drink. Like I've never, I don't like, people might disagree with this, but I don't think I've ever tried to incite fights. I've always, I'm always pretty loving and stuff, dude, but... I could be loud and like I was never listening, you know. <laughs> just, and I see that my dad a bit with the listening thing because if you're busy in your mind, it's fucking hard to listen, yeah. right? Well, I remember when we met, mm. you were still taking medication. Yes. You were still yeah. on antidepressants as and, well at the time. And, and tramadol. And tramadol. And, tr- and drinking a lot. And drinking a lot. And this is a big thing that I've become aware of with men and women, but more so men because mm. we don't tend to open up and, and talk about what we're dealing with, what mm. we're struggling with. We will just numb the pain. We'll yes, just avoid yeah. and numb. And we, sure. we all 
have our addictions and vices. Mm. Some addictions are more harder to break or mm. more intense than others. Mm. Examples of other addictions. Caffeine, going to the gym, watching mm. porn, mm. social media, um, the need to always be busy. Yeah. Um, harder, more uh, intense addictions. You know, we say high-level coping and, and you know, maladaptive and, and adaptive coping strategies are different varying degrees of mm. like how we cope with our yeah. suppressed emotions. On the on the on the uh, in more intense scale, we've got prescription drugs, mm. um, having sex frequently, mm. uh, using things such as cannabis, yeah. alcohol, and other illicit drugs. You were taking prescription medication mm. as and as a way to cope, which yeah. is one of the hardest yeah. ways to the hardest addictions to break. Yeah, I speak to a lot of people who still mm. unsure how to break that addiction, man. Especially prescription drugs because. There is that attachment to this. This, this mm. saved save your life in, in a way. Some of these, yeah, and I think they're provided by doctors as well. And like you know, and this is not slight any doctors at all because they're they're needed as well. Mm-hmm. They're needed pay, high painkillers, but man, it's a fucking slippery slope with that. And I know there's pl- I know there are definitely guys out there. As soon as I mention tramadol, like it'll pique their interest. Like they'll know what that that is, right? Especially sports people, you for know? sure. So, so at what point? I guess what I'm getting at is what point. Did you know you were ready to break? Kick it all, yeah. yeah to, to, to not require these, these external substances to... Well, the point for me again was when I'd been out with a mate at a wine tour and I just got completely inebriated and I just have to like put emphasis on how much of a grog monster I actually was. <laughs> yeah, I drank a lot of piss. And um, the next day I'd come home and my brother was... I was living with my brother Dean at the time and his partner. And man, I'm like a fucking bear when I come home and I'm full of piss. I was like through the pantries and he's like checked in on me. And I woke up the next morning and I was just like in a state of severe anxiety, something I hadn't experienced for a long time. And Dean was like, like come in. He's like, you know, you're shouting at the neighbors last night on the fucking balcony and stuff. And I was like, Jesus fucking Christ. I'm like, right. And I just sat there and I was like, this, I'm done with this. But it was scary because I had a real bad panic attack. And my brother gave me like four Valium and I wasn't coming out the other end of it so I was just like I don't think I needed him to take me to hospital but there was a question mark around that I was like dude I'm fucking battling and he sat with me and I didn't even about mental health I'd never had a bad panic attack before and I just did a life audit internally I was just like what are, like, what are you doing with yourself like how disrespectful to all your family your friends everyone has turned up for you five six years ago when you're re- your partner at the time like everyone came into bat for you I, I say I seeking validation was my fucking thing you know especially for my inner circle you know and um yeah i I just said i'm done like but i said i'm done with painkillers i think at that stage and um i think it was like maybe a month later when we met so i was i don't know like waddling through life a little bit and sort of getting rid of maybe bits and pieces i might have said no more tramadol you know but i've said that before in the past and so i think the tramadol was the first to drop for me because I had a lot of attachment to alcohol as well, I guess, unbeknownst. And now I very rarely drink. Like I have a few beers, but yeah, and, and, and thought of it. Also, the realization that underneath these addictions or dependencies mm. is that dark, scary mm. part of ourselves that we're afraid to face. 
Yeah, and, and yeah, I feel like yeah, there comes yes, a point yes, in the journey yes. where you gather enough courage and, mm. and enough tools in your, you know, your emotional toolkit to to go. Okay, I'm ready to to face yeah. some of these some Agreed. of these suppressed parts of myself. And I think sometimes you need, especially as men, you need you need other men to sort of call you on that. And I, I got that from that weekend we spent together. Not just Jordan and I. There was like other mm-hmm. people there, but mm-hmm. man, there's some powerful dudes there. All that I call my friend and and girls and. I always share the story of my family. I went down and, man, I wasn't fit then either. <laughs> it's like I think I've been drinking all night. I turned up and um, I just, my, I had a paradigm shift. I was like, how are these people living this way? Or look how free and happy they seem. They're grinding and they're just getting after it. And that shifted me enough more to go, right, something has to give here. Well, I need help. Let's be honest. I just said I need help. And I reached out to our mutual friend Alex and I didn't know what life coaches. You know, I didn't realize you guys were being coached before and that was your job per se. And we'd spend the whole weekend together. Mm-hmm. Maybe that says something about me not really asking you questions. But, man, we watched that rugby game together. Like France played Australia. It was last year. And they like won with 14 men. And I think that bonded me with you. I'm mm-hmm. like, because I was, you know, I didn't want to put that game on. I felt like I wasn't allowed to put it on. Yeah. And, and that's, we, we realized that pattern early on in the piece mm, as well. Around, I was saying sorry a lot. Right? Yeah, saying sorry. Yeah. Apologizing just for being. Yep. Just mm. a- afraid of taking up space. Yeah. People, people pleasing. It's a common mm. one, man. It's mm. the same as yeah. a pattern that I've noticed in myself. And yes. Yeah. It's, I've watched you evolve mm. and transition and move through a lot of intense emotions mm. through a lot of courage. Thank so you, tell me, like, w- if anyone's listening to this and they're maybe still taking prescription medication, maybe they're relying on meds to keep their mental health at a, a certain level, where, where, where does someone begin to say, okay, I'm ready to, to, lose, to let go of this dependency or addiction. I'm ready to meet and, and let go of this heaviness that, that's mm. down there. What advice do you have for someone given the fact you've now been through it you know, you're, you're still on this journey, but yeah. you're, you're certainly at a point now where you can speak, speak confidently on, on what, yeah, what it takes. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I guess that any entry level for that is maybe, maybe considering how you make other people feel. So for me, I'd come down to my family after a week of policing sometimes and I almost had a fight with my brother one Christmas. And my realization deeply for me was like I'm treating criminals and like people who are breaking the law per se and I treat everyone how I expect to be treated but I was treating them better than I was treating my own family, my loved ones. So I needed that stark realization and then the panic attack. So there's a few things for me that I was just like, dude, if I continue this path, I'm crazier than I thought. And yeah, I just getting help I think or just really understanding maybe what addiction is and because I also told myself that I would just take tramadol on Sundays or I'd take them when I'm hungover or I could tell myself even though I was in pain with my hands and my neck it was a bit of a fallacy dude like I was I didn't have an open communication with my body I wasn't doing all the right things so I was just it was an excuse or I told myself I needed these things just to get through like anything to take tramadol before I went and saw my dad that was a big one for me take tramadol before I went to see my family so I was chill or flat around them so I wouldn't get triggered because I hadn't really deeply faced anything that I really needed to or I didn't let it come up. So I don't know if that answers your question well, it, too it much. Well, it does in a way because mm. it, it is back to healing 
those inner child wounds mm, which are yeah. triggered the most around our family yeah so when someone is ready to do that mm. deep inner work it, it it almost is like you have to kind of go back into mm. what happened around your your dad and your Absolutely, family you know? yeah and i think um some of you guys started talking about numbness and i hadn't heard the term inner child that's crazy right mm. i hadn't heard any of that um I'd understood trauma on a policing level and, you know, I used to see kids which that hurt my heart, like just battling and now I deeply understand that. It's probably why I struggle to be a police officer now. But, um, yeah, just understanding, hearing, hearing you're numbing yourself or learning about the nervous system, uh, yeah, so that falls in with my SSIRs as well, my uh, antidepressant medication. But... For me, it wasn't a hard shift, man, with tramadol. I don't know why. Like maybe because I had so much other shit going on as well. So I was like, well, I need to get rid of that. And I knew I'd seen I'd seen people go down a path with tramadol, and then I'd seen in policing that prescription drugs were not far, you know, kind of often used with methamphetamine sometimes as well. And like I was like, I knew I wouldn't get there because I had resilience, but. I didn't like the man I was, man. I was just mm. a fucking numb dude. Mm. And when I met guys like yourself, like I could talk the talk, but I wasn't walking the walk though because I did a lot of reading and, I, and I, I used to do meditation, some breath work, but I was really like living a lie. I was lying to myself. And that's when I just, I'd had that moment where I was like, this is enough. Like I'm not going to lie to myself. I gotta love, like I've got to learn to love myself. Well, we're only here for a minute. And up until 37, I'd had a glimpse of like like my childhood was wasn't all bad like it was fucking good man and um, I loved that and now since I've moved back to Rockingham I'm living a street away from my young and I f I'm finding the inner child in me it's crazy like I do th simple things that make me super happy you know like my painting and stuff like that it's just what I would I was drawing a lot as a child or I was do a lot of that in school yeah I've got one of your paintings hanging <laughs> just, just over there behind us yeah, yeah. <laughs> beautiful gift yeah, up, that's exactly still. the point bro mm. your journey has now taken you back to establishing mm. a relationship with yourself with yes, your inner child yeah. and knowing how to meet your own needs mm. give your inner child that that freedom that that reassurance that love to know that everything's okay yeah dude yeah and that's massive that's huge for me and just being gentle with myself in the process yeah i've never been i've never done that before and like i said it's not it hasn't been smooth sailing i moved in with my brother and i'd spent a lot of time away from my family but they were always we we're always very close but it's like once a fortnight to see my folks or something and moving back in with my brother was you know there were some blow-ups dude some heavy blow-ups and most of them were probably my fault in a way but and two older brothers shouldn't live together. Two brothers in their thirties shouldn't live together. Anyway, I always use the stepbrothers in an analogy. It wasn't far off that. And I'm not even kidding. But yeah, um, so I had some blow-ups, man. I punched a cabinet during one argument, man. I headbutted a wall, and this was only this is only two months ago as well. So that's important to share that, and just to know that like you can keep pushing through, but there's going to be things that come up, and so I was deeply embarrassed how I behaved, you know, but. On the other side of that, and, and I had to really question, I had to ask why I was willing to hurt myself. So that was a question I asked myself. And that sort of ran deep. When I say why am I willing to hurt myself, that encompassed excessive drinking, excessive painkiller use, all the other bits and pieces, I was food even. Dude, I had to really mm -hmm. reassess. And yeah, I think, and I deeply believe in the universe we had a, I'm say it has a high purpose for me, or maybe it does, but it was nudging me in the right direction. 
It was nudging me, nudging me, nudging me. And then I met you, then you opened the door for me. And that's what we need as men. Mm. We need that, like, if you've, got, if you've got a feeling, just really go with it and then reach out to someone that can fucking back you with that because there's heaps of dudes or women that are willing to do that who just love that space. Big and time. now I understand because I love that space too. Yeah. Yeah, and we're walking this path together now. Mm. And, uh, bro, uh, you know, as we start to wrap this up, mm. you know, tell, tell me a little bit now about what you see your purpose being given your mental health challenges, mm. what you've been through, uh, where is your soul and life calling yeah. you to next? So for me, this is important as well. Uh, my primary purpose is always oh, yes. my inner work. Great um, answer. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I knew you'd like that. But <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I, and it, it's not always easy. I, I try and put myself on the top of my priority list and – I'm doing exactly what I want to do, but that doesn't that doesn't mean that I don't have like Zoom calls and you know because I'm off work with after three surgeries, you know, like two hand surgeries. I've got some numbness in my right hand. I I struggle with that sometimes, but that's been a silver lining for me. It's able it's allowed me to slow down. And I don't know to be fair, maybe if I didn't have these surgeries, I don't know how if I, if I would have slowed down because I'm super busy as well, and you know this, but. Yeah, where I see myself is just in this space. Like I did, I, I help facilitate with a good friend of mine a men's circle on Sunday, and I had, you know, I still have self doubt, dude. I had self doubt driving up here, going, and I, but I know what that is now. This is my ego trying to make me play small again, mm -hmm. and we just, you know, we love yeah, that, I but see we tell you. them to Thank fuck you. off. Yeah. I love you. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, and so things like that have just been powerful, and then having men around like yourself and Alex and just guys that I can see just really living their potential and not conforming. So how I see myself is just being in this space and providing. I love to mentor. Like I love being a carer. For me, that was working with young lads with autism and going to community development. I mean, that's a that's a job, you know. Like I love that. Um, so, yeah, I reckon – well, I know that I don't reckon. I deeply know that my path is – is very clear, even though there's some obstacles to jump through. I would just want to provide space and speak to guys or girls or anyone that has had or has been through or is in what I went through, you know, because you, you have to deeply understand that it's just, it is a moment. It's a moment in time, even though, if it, like with me, it was years. You know, it's cliche, but, you know, this, this, too, will, this too shall pass. But just get get help is the biggest thing mm. and like you said i've got help from many sources in the past and they haven't always aligned but eventually it will if you don't if you don't if you just keep putting one foot in front of the other and believing in yourself dude it'll drop in eventually and it'll hit when you least expect it like i didn't realize i wasn't going to go on that weekend away yeah and i often think about that and my brother encouraged me to go on that he's like what are you going to do drink beers and watch rugby all weekend and i was like yeah i am going to do that like that's what i was doing <laughs> And I went away and look how my, like my life has just changed. And it's, it's scary sometimes because I've always done the nine to five. I've always sort of fallen back into menial jobs that I thought I was lucky to have or I didn't think I could do anything else. So mm, for me now, it's like I, I said to my mom yesterday, I was like, I've got a new zest. I've got a new lease on life. And I want everyone to know that they can, they will have, they will have that. But don't do anything drastic in the meantime. Yeah, bro. Uh, I just want to acknowledge you, man. It's uh, been seven months since I met you. Hmm. 
you know, for us to, to just, just listening to you talk right now and hearing the level of clarity in your communication is something that I always gauge a man's growth through the level of clarity in his communication. And you can feel it in you where, where you've come and, and how you speak now. It's, mm. it's a lot more potent. And thank you, bro. That's that's a testament to, to the commitment, man, that we, mm. that you've you've displayed throughout all of this, and uh, really encourage or invite people listening uh, to connect with you uh, because you are on this journey now where you are of service. You you are here to support yeah. other people, and where can uh, people connect with you online? For me, it's probably Instagram's the best at the moment, and I think my my handles are. At Tizza too. Yeah, we've been dropping. I've been dropping in on TikTok as yeah, well, but I can't, even, I can't even tell you my my handle on that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was Jordan. He <laughs> threw me under the bus there. But like another thing, on the other side is fears. On the other side of fears, everything you ever wanted. And man, I've been f- fearful a lot, and more so recently. Like the more open you become, I think sometimes it's like that fear can creep back in, mm-hmm. especially if you're not used to. If you're used to I don't even want to say playing small, but just used to just doing life and not and you might have dreams and goals, but you're like, oh, I just can't quite can't quite get it. And one thing I'll just leave with and you know, and I really appreciate you for just letting me see myself again. And I'll I'll share this with my brother sometimes and people because it, even though I'm off work now and maybe it can I catch myself and I go, dude, you can you've only done this work because you've because you've got time and that's that perfectionism just mm-hmm. dropping back in. But I guess for me, and it's important to know anyone, there is time. And so I was getting up at like 4.30 in the morning when we first started working together, right? And you said, just journal for seven days. And that was hard. And I fit it in my day. I was sitting outside the jiu-jitsu gym journaling, but I just got it done. And that was power in that. And I was like, if I can do this, I just found myself again. So I was up at 4.30 and I'd meditate. I'd do my qigong and then I'd journal and then I'd go to work. And I, even though if I didn't really want to be at work or my heart was somewhere else, I would just turn up and provide energy for people who are there. And then I would train in the evenings and I'd just become a professional, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Like, I'd become a professional at living again. Well, it's what Eckhart speaks about where you don't need to change what you do, you just need to change how you do it. Mm, yeah, and that's what, bringing that's that level of presence and space mm. and clarity into you know because mm. you can make a cup of tea and be completely unconscious yes, of it in your head yes. or you can be mm. powerfully present and mm. you know be there with every little movement and the quality of the energy that you bring into that mm. that action is completely transformative Amazing. so yes yeah, it's, it's sort of what you did bro you didn't mm. change what no you i didn't change doing. anything yeah. i chipped i trimmed the fat yeah and then through yourself it's just and everyone's intelligent as well i just want to let that drop innately intelligent oh yeah when we're when we're quiet and that was i just told myself i was a stupid dude for a long time or i wasn't getting things couldn't pick up plays but there's a reason for that so when we start chipping away at things and sort of trimming the fat or however you want to say it from from porn to like your phone um yeah i still have moments on my phone uh dude from drinking Mm. from just the shit like then you can realize then it's up to you how clear you want to get because the clearer you get the more life becomes beautiful. Yes. But, you know, you don't always want to live like a monk. I know, I understand that. You still got to have fun. You've yeah. got to have fun because life's play, right? Yeah, and that's that's what I really love about you, bro. Mm. The, the the fun element is has never been lost. Yeah, I'm glad, man. Yeah. I said to my brother as well, I was like, 
dude, you could lose yourself on. We did a two week cleanse not long ago, you know, and I was just like, fuck, I'm getting pretty serious towards the end of this, you know, like everything. I just quit everything. And I love the fact that I can do that. But at the same time, man, I don't want to live like that. Yeah. But it's nice. It's nice to know you can get that level of clarity when you want. And I think that's important for people to know. Like, And so for me, if I've got to turn up for something like today, I won't say I was in bed early or anything, but man, I turn up because I know you've turned up and this is important to me and it's important to you. So you don't have to turn up all the time, but when you do, just fucking turn up. Fuck yes. <laughs> well, bro, we're about to uh, head off to uh, your so, first Bikram yoga class. <laughs> yeah. I'm taking you back to where my journey began, which was the hot yoga room. So I'm, I'm yeah. super pumped about that mm. and we're going to have to wrap this up. Can you do that in jean shorts? <laughs> <laughs> we're about to find out. Dude, uh, thank, thank you for you. coming on. This has just been uh, – this is a dream come true for both of us. It has been, yeah. Yeah, yeah I was um, – yeah, there's a lot of trepidation. I was nervous, dude, but like, like anyone, you make people feel at home and – yeah, I don't want to plug you or anything or blow smoke up your ass, but if anyone is stuck and they've tried a few different things, man, if you haven't tried getting coached and just assume in the mantle of a white belt and you're just going to learn so much. And, you know, Jordan, dude, you're a fucking amazing human being, bro, and I've always looked up to you regardless of the age and, you know, I, I saw you, saw myself in you and I think, um, yeah, I'm forever great, forever grateful. And I told you, like, it doesn't matter what I do in this lifetime now. The fact that you've brought me closer to my family is like something I can never repay. So, yeah. Wow, man. Thank you. No, wow. That means so much. And, mm. uh, yeah, let's do a round two again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is just the tip of the it's iceberg the too. Man. So, uh, the beginning. I didn't want to freak people out. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, bro. Thank no, you guys thank you. for listening. And, uh, yeah, bye for now.